0: There was no response to the boarding party's calls, save the rolling waves crashing against the empty ship. Beds were still made, supplies and cargo were aplenty, but not a living thing was aboard the ghost ship. Adrift at sea, far, far from land without any crew. Just what exactly happened to the Mary Celeste? Welcome once again, dear listeners, to Channel FM. My name is Thomas, your shapeless, incomprehensible host. And I'm here to share with you all the peculiar and uncertain things that make our world an often strange and unsettling place to live. You'll find the eerie here, the peculiar and the weird, all brought together for your easy listening. So please, sit back and do your best to relax. Let the mind wander along on the topics of terror I've brought for you today. It is a dark and terribly windy night up here on the hill, so you have my apologies if the quality suffers a little for it. For the steeplejacks repairing man-made attempts to reach the heavens, to the tireless healthcare workers that often see both the best and worst of humanity, and for everyone named Lauren, you have our special shout-out this episode. Today's terrifying tale is one that I was somewhat obsessed with as a child, and likely began the lifelong passion of mine with the unusual, the sinister, and the uncomfortable. Everyone finds mysteries fascinating, it's human nature too, but this particular mystery is one that is modern enough to remove it from fiction, but has yet lasted over a hundred years without being solved. This week, I'll be speaking to you of the Mary Celeste, an American merchant brigantine vessel turned ghost ship that was discovered adrift in the Atlantic Ocean on December 4th, 1872. She was supposed to carry ten people, seven crew members, then her captain, Benjamin S. Briggs, his wife, Sarah, and their two-year-old daughter, Sophia. Yet, not a single soul was found aboard. So, what happened to them all? A mutiny gone wrong? A maritime conspiracy? Bloodied piracy? Or is it something more bizarre? As with most of our recounts, we'll start at the beginning and let you, dear listener, draw your own conclusions. Even before being discovered as a ghost ship, The Mary Celeste was considered by many who'd crewed her at one point or another to be a cursed vessel, with a shadowy history rife with mysterious deaths, misfortune, and misery. Before the ship became the infamous Mary Celeste, she was named the Amazon, and her maiden voyage took place in June 1861, where she set off from Nova Scotia's Five Islands to carry a cargo of timber to London. Shortly after supervising the ship's loading and departure, Captain Robert McLellan, the ship's first captain, became ill, a mysterious illness that would eventually, unfortunately, claim his life. John Nutting Parker took over as captain, but the misfortune continued. The Amazon collided with fishing equipment in the narrows off Eastport, Maine, and once more near London, where she ran into and sank a brig in the English Channel. In 1867, under a new captain, the Amazon was driven ashore in a terrible storm. Badly damaged, she was abandoned as a wreck, and then sold. After a few change of hands and a costly sum of money, the repaired, refurbished, and extended vessel returned to work with a new name and a new captain, the Mary Celeste, with Captain Benjamin Briggs eager to shake off the growing reputation as a cursed and damned vessel. Briggs chose the crew himself, stating that they were peaceable and first-class sailors, and in early November 1872, the ship set off on its doomed voyage, with a hold full of denatured alcohol, 1,701 barrels of it. This tidbit of information will be important later, but it's also useful to know that denatured alcohol is fuel instead of drink. It's ethanol, and toxic when consumed. As the Mary Celeste sailed away, the Canadian ship that would find it, the De Gratia, captained by David Morehouse, was awaiting a cargo of petroleum destined for Genoa. It sailed some 8 days after the Mary Celeste, following much the same direction and route. A month later at sea, and the quiet and peace was shattered when the helmsman of the De Gratia reported a vessel in the distance approaching them, seemingly in distress, judging on its chaotic and erratic movements. As they drew closer, the De Gratia saw that her sails and rigging were in disrepair and noted the Mary Celeste's name on her stern. They received no reply to their signals and saw no crew on deck. Realising that something was very wrong, Captain Morehouse sent his first and second mate aboard the Mary Celeste to investigate, where they made a truly eerie discovery. They found the ship utterly deserted, without a single soul aboard it. The ship's cargo was, save for a few damaged barrels, more or less intact. They found enough food, water, and supplies to last the crew for six more months and much of the crew's belongings were found still within their quarters. A makeshift sounding rod was found abandoned on deck, an improvised tool used for measuring the amount of water in the hold. The main hatch was secure, but the front and back hatches were found open with their covers beside them on deck. There was about 3.5 feet of water in the hold, which is a significant amount, but it isn't entirely alarming for a ship this size. It wouldn't have hindered her travel in any way, or put the crew in danger. But strangely, one of the pumps aimed at removing said water was found dismantled. A single lifeboat was also missing, and the rope holding it had been cut rather than untied, which suggested they had fled with haste. After all, you don't cut a rope you might use again later. The daily logbook was found in the mate's cabin, and the final entry was dated at 8am on November 25th, nine days earlier nearly 400 nautical miles from where it was first seen by the De Gratia. There was no immediate sign of violence, bloodshed, or fire, and all evidence pointed towards an immediate departure at a moment's notice. The crew was not given time to gather their things that remained in the hold, and the captain would almost certainly have taken the logbook with him if he had ample time and believed the ship lost. So, where had everyone gone? And why had the captain deemed it necessary to abandon the ship? Clueless, the reportings were brought back to Captain Morehouse on the day at Gratia, and the captain made the decision to sail the derelict back to Gibraltar. Under maritime law, they could expect a substantial share of the combined value of both rescued vessel and the cargo for the good deed of bringing it back. At least, that's what they were hoping for. The hearing was conducted by Frederick Solly Flood, a man who believed that nefarious trickery and murder was afoot. Flood ordered an examination of the Mary Celeste, now safely back in harbor, which was carried out by one John Austin. Austin noted large cuts on each side of the ship's bow and peculiar stains on both Captain Briggs' sword, left in his quarters sheathed on the Celeste, and on the rails of the ship, which he believed could be blood. Flood believed with this evidence in hand that the crew of the De Gratia had murdered the crew of the Mary Celeste and doctored the logbook to add to their claim. But without enough evidence to support him, Flood reluctantly awarded the De Gratia £1,700 as a reward, which was a paltry sum compared to what they were entitled to. The damage to their character was done, however, and the crew were under suspicion in the court of public opinion for the rest of their lives and beyond. But if Captain Morehouse and his crew really were innocent, then what exactly happened to the crew of the Mary Celeste? Let's go through a few possibilities. Given the cargo was more or less untouched, it seems safe to rule out piracy. There were a few leaky barrels, but if the Mary Celeste had indeed been at the mercy of pirates, they surely would have simply taken the ship or the expensive cargo. Valuable personal possessions of both the captain and the crew were also left on the ship, and if the crew resisted, there would have been more obvious signs of a struggle. The fact that only a single lifeboat was missing, and with its rope cut no less, suggested that they all left in it, and immediately, for whatever reason. The captain's logbook makes mention of ominous rumbling from within the hold, likely a result of the dangerous cargo, which could give off explosive gas if handled improperly, and had happened in the past before. Another proposed explanation follows more natural causes, one being that of a seaquake. A seaquake, as the name implies, is an undersea earthquake that disturbs the water above it, causing tsunamis and other disasters. A sudden seaquake could have jostled the Celeste's cargo, releasing the toxic and explosive fumes into the hold. One crew member lighting a pipe or cigarette in the wrong place at the wrong time could have disastrous consequences, and be a valid cause for fleeing the vessel. Some have floated even more… peculiar cases for the disappearance, such as an attack by the mythical Kraken. The legendary giant squid sea monster that turns the waters black with an inky veil and attacks vessels on the surface. It reaches up with vast tentacles that rise from the roiling waters to pluck doomed sailors from the deck and drown them in the fathomless depths, devouring them in a gaping maw. I can't help but wonder what exactly they felt, if indeed they did enter that lifeboat, just what horror and fear set them to abandon their ship on the empty ocean and the dread and sorrow as they realized their mistake, watching it sail away from them into the unknown horizon. As the proverb goes, the sea is like a cruel mistress. You can love her, you can hate her, but you can never truly trust her. It's likely that we'll never really know what happened to the doomed crew of the Mary Celeste, that their lives have been cast to the mists of time in the merciless nature of the sea. But what is your opinion, dear listener? Which theory do you think is most likely, or do you have a solution that we've not discussed here? Email me and let me know. On the end of that subject, we move next onto the unnerving news with a grisly discovery at the Notre Dame Cathedral. Workers rebuilding the cathedral after the fire that devastated it in April 2019 have made a number of strange and frightening discoveries in a spot that they were planning to use for scaffolding. A long-forgotten and ancient graveyard, lost for some 800 years or so. Amongst it, painted sculptures of a pair of carved hands, a bust of a bearded man, and assorted vegetables. The most chilling discovery, however, is of a 14th century sarcophagus made entirely out of lead, the contents of which are described as being perfectly preserved. The mummified corpse within still has their hair and clothes intact and even has a pillow of leaves atop the head. Its well preserved state makes it an important discovery, and the person within was likely a religious leader or dignitary of some sort. Macabre, but fascinating. With that, we'll move on to this episode's Cryptid of the Week, and it is one of the most famous things to come out of New Jersey. Well, other than bubble wrap and Carl Sagan, of course. It's the infamous Jersey Devil. All stories about the Jersey Devil, in my opinion, should begin with its origin stories. One of which focuses on Mother Leeds, a mother of twelve who was utterly distraught upon learning that she was pregnant for the thirteenth time, a number that has long been associated by some to be an unlucky number. Her husband was a foul drunkard, and the two of them could barely afford to provide for their twelve children, let alone an unlucky thirteenth. The folktale states that on a dark and stormy night, in a terrible fear, rage, and agony, Mother Leeds cried out, let this child be the devil, before giving birth to the beast, a monster with black and bat-like wings, deadly talons befitting a dragon, a forked tail, and the head and hooves of a horse, a wyvern-like creature, the stuff of nightmares, with glowing red eyes and a blood-curdling scream. The devil fled the house by flying up through the chimney, disappearing into the countryside where it has been plaguing the lands ever since. There are a myriad of other origin tales, however. That Mother Leeds was a witch that made a deal with the devil and laid with him. That Mother Leeds was a local girl who fell in love with an English soldier and was cursed by the townsfolk for it. And another states that it's all part of a Quaker conspiracy. Regardless of its origin, the beast has supposedly been terrorising the locals since its creation. The creature has been blamed for everything from unexplained occurrences to livestock killings, deaths, and more. It's also rumoured that even Napoleon Bonaparte's older brother, Joseph Bonaparte, heard and saw the beast while hunting out on his Bordentown estate. Petrified, unable to move from abject fear at seeing the abomination, he completely forgot about the rifle in his hand. They stared at one another for what must have felt like an agonizing eternity, before the creature screamed once more and took to flight, disappearing. In the early 1900s, a fresh and new wave of sightings occurred also, with newspapers publishing hundreds of claimed events from all over South Jersey and the Philadelphia areas. The stories claimed many things, that the beast was fired upon and shot to no avail, that it left strange and unique footprints in the snow that none could identify, ending suddenly as it took to the air, stories of decomposing carcasses that were remains of those hunted by the devil, and even that the Philadelphia Zoo had posted a $10,000 reward for the creature, Despite a number of hoaxes and hunters prowling the country searching for the Devil, none successfully claimed the bounty. Men, women, and children stayed in their homes at the height of the hysteria, refusing to leave for work or anything else, really, terrified that they next would become yet another of the Jersey Devil's victims, plucked into the air and carried off to some bone-covered and blood-caked lair, or that they would become yet another nameless and butchered victim reported in the papers. So, listeners, what do you believe? It's clear that this is a genuine piece of New Jersey history, real or not, as it is often our folktales that give a place that unique special something to an area. Is this a real and genuine anomaly of nature, or is it simply a sad and cautionary tale about demonizing those who need genuine help and assistance in their time of need? As always, if you have a subject you want to talk about, a story you want read on the air, a particular cryptid investigated, or even feedback for myself, then reach out to me at channelfm at gmail.com. That means that we've come to the end of our show, however, and the part where I bid you all good night with a frightening fact. Freddy Krueger is a well-known movie monster and slasher from the Nightmare on Elm Street series. But what many don't know is that the inspiration for the movies actually has its roots grounded in a real-life story published in the LA Times about a boy who suffered nightmares so terrible. That he actually perished during one. Wes Craven, the director, stated he told his parents he was afraid that if he slept, the thing chasing him would get him. So he tried to stay awake for days at a time. When he finally fell asleep, his parents thought the crisis was over. Then they heard screams in the middle of the night. By the time they got to him, he was dead. He died in the middle of a nightmare. Sweet dreams, everyone. And try not to have any nightmares. The songs used in this episode are titled Terminal, SCP-X6-X, Spring-Thor, and Smoother Move, and are all made by Kevin MacLeod. They are licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. His website is com, and he makes excellent music for podcasts such as this one for any genre. Go and give him a look.